Amen. Before you sit down, why don't you take a couple minutes and greet one another? You can be seated now. I'm just teething. Good to see you guys today. Thanks for being here. I'd have been here whether you were here or not, but it's good to have you here. I'm better to have a group with us. Before we uh, get into the message this morning, just a couple of reminders. Uh, Stephanie Alsman is uh, seeking to go to the Dominican Republic on a missions trip this summer. And if you would be so inclined to want to support her in some way, the information to do that is out there on the information table. Or certainly you could talk to Stephanie or Myron or Jill about that. Don't forget men, if you have signed up or are planning to go on the men's retreat this summer... And if you even want information about that, please go to the men's table, talk to Woody, but you need to get your money in for that. So uh, please don't forget about that. The deadline is looming to get your money in for the men's retreat. They've got a really good group of men going this year. Uh, Two weeks from today is our potluck, uh, the last one until fall. And we're going to have just a good old-fashioned cookout, hamburgers and hot dogs on the grill. So just bring some picnic-y type stuff to fill in, and we'll have a great time the first Sunday in June for that. Um, Also, just a reminder that uh, we've only got four chapters left in the book of Revelation on Tuesday night, and we're coming to what I think is the the best part of the book, uh, the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, and what's that kingdom like, and then talking about heaven and what heaven's going to be like. And so just some exciting chapters coming up these last four weeks. So love to have you come out Tuesday evening. We meet over here in the cafeteria at seven o'clock on Tuesday nights. And of course, we have stuff for the youth on Tuesday nights. We have stuff for our kids on Tuesday night. So uh, great time. Great time. Romans chapter three this morning. I'm going to go back to chapter two because I know those of you that at least pay attention, you're like, whoa, We haven't finished chapter 2 yet. I know, I know. But I want to start out in Romans chapter 3 today. If you had a serious medical or physical condition, would you want to know it? Be careful how you answer that. Be honest, I should say, of how you answer that. Because some people are like, 
You know, if I had something really majorly wrong with me, I don't want to know about it, you know, type of thing. Would you want your doctor to be absolutely open and honest and 100% truthful, not holding anything back as to your true condition or not? The reason I say that is because God here in Romans chapter 3, from verses 10 through 18, that passage, and we're not necessarily going to go down through that passage. It's not very flattering, and not just because of that. God gives us his diagnosis of mankind apart from him. He basically says, here's your spiritual condition apart from me. Here's what the entrance of sin did to the human race. Here are the consequences of the fall of man that we learn about in the book of Genesis. And the reason why God lays out this reality, if you will, in verses 10 through 18 is, He wants mankind to come to the realization of how desperately we need God. If we don't really acknowledge or recognize or realize our true spiritual condition apart from God, then we're never really going to think we really need God that much. Or that we really don't have a desperate need of Him. We... We're, we're pretty good and we can sort of handle things on our own. And so that's why God gives this very descriptive uh, diagnosis of mankind in verses 10 through 18 of Romans chapter 3. And I, I'll just direct your attention to the very last verse where God says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. A strange phrase, but... He uses that phrase because in Bible times, what it meant was that that mankind does not direct his steps with any kind of reverence or respect for God. That's what it means to have no fear of God. Again, just a term of reverence and respect before their eyes. In other words, God is saying, apart from, from me... Apart from any divine influence in someone's life, people don't take into account me at all when it comes to directing their life or directing their steps. If they had true reverence and respect for me, I would be the number one consideration for their choices and decisions and and directing their steps in life. But because of the fall, because sin entered the world through a man, And sin has now been passed upon all men, for all have sinned. God says, here's the condition. Here's the way it really is. And again, he describes that for us. Now, it's been thousands of years since the fall. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. But we haven't changed very much in our human nature, even though that took place thousands of years ago. And we can say, well, we, we're advancing, we've evolved, we've made lots. The Bible would say, you may have advanced in some areas, but you've went backwards in a lot of areas. And in some areas, 
Human nature is no different now than it was thousands of years ago because of sin. Let me give you a couple examples. Going back to the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, what was their first reaction? We're hiding from God. And what does man still do today? Man still hides from God. He still runs from God. Instead of coming clean and recognizing our true spiritual condition apart from God, we hide, we run. What was the other thing that Adam and Eve did? They tried to make a covering for themselves. They, they tried to make themselves presentable or acceptable to God. It's exactly what man again has done down through the ages. It's called works salvation. Or somehow downplaying how bad a condition we are really in apart from God so that man has come to believe, I'm pretty good. Instead of seeing things from God's perspective, they look at themselves as, I don't really need God in my life because damn deep, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Or else I'm going to work my way to heaven. By my own works. And then the final thing that I saw in the whole fall thing was when God finally did confront them. And by the way, God is going to pursue us. Even though we may run and hide from God, God loves us so much that he won't just keep letting us run. He'll pursue us just like he did Adam and Eve. And when he finally got to them, what did they do? Start pointing the finger to everyone else. He, Adam was like, well, God, it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. This all happened. And he put the blame on her and pointed the finger at her. And then when she was confronted, she's like, ah, it was the serpent. It's his fault. This all happened. And again, have we come any further in thousands of years? As human beings down deep in our core, we have a real hard time admitting we're wrong. We have a real hard time accepting responsibility. And our first inclination whenever we are confronted with something is, let's point the finger and blame somebody else. I say all that because that's why God is saying, man has a problem. And man needs to come to the realization of how deep that problem is in order to really see how much you need me. If we downplay our spiritual condition apart from God and apart from divine influence, then we'll go through the day pretty much on our own thinking we can handle things and we really don't need God in our life. Or even as a so-called Christian, I don't really need to keep depending on God because I got this God. I'm strong enough in and of myself. So... Verses 10 through 18 share with us the condition that we're in. But here's the, here's the good news of that. God says, if you are willing to acknowledge your true spiritual condition and look to me for help, I will not only bring you into a right relationship with me through Christ, and we're going to talk about this more in coming weeks, but I can begin to create a new heart in you. I can change your heart. 
And I can begin to renew your mind because God wants us all to realize that part of the effects of the fall, part of the consequences of the fall is literally our heart is broken. And and I don't mean the way we normally use that term. Our heart is broke. And remember, in the Bible, the heart is sort of the seat of passions and affections and and emotions and and drives. And it really is what drives our choices and decisions in life and, and what directs our steps more than sometimes the reverence and respect for God does. And then God says, do we realize as human beings how messed up our mind has become through the fall? That... Our thinking can go off track so quickly and so easily. And we can start to think all kinds of bad things and negative things and things that don't line up with, with God's word or, and, and don't think along the lines of God's perspective. And he says, but, but I can change your heart and I can renew your mind. But again, we have to realize the condition that we're in. For instance, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably bad apart from God. That's why I cringe when I hear even a Christian say, I'm following my heart with this decision. I'm going, you're what? (laughs) You're following your heart? Do you realize what direction? (laughs) You don't realize where... The condition of your heart, do you? Because we can't depend on our human heart. Or we're not really understanding the condition of our heart. We've got to let God literally change our heart. And make our heart new in Him. Apart from that, our heart's going to take us in the wrong direction. And then our mind... We have such a faulty, failed way of thinking apart from divine influence at all times. So that's why Paul later on in the book of Romans tells Christians, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. And that in the Greek language is continually being renewed. In other words, there never comes a point even as a Christian where I can say, I don't need my mind renewed anymore. It's a lifelong, lifetime process of getting our thinking aligned with God's mind. And this is all because of the fall, you see. So this is why Paul in chapter 3 begins to tackle this and lay this out, because he wants Christians... And he wants God's people to understand the desperate condition we're in. Not to discourage us, but to remind us that even though we're in this terrible condition, God is not going to forsake us. God is not going to abandon us. In fact, God is going to pursue us and chase after us and hope that we will turn to him. And when we turn to him, he will tell us, now I know your heart and your mind is in a bad state, but I can give you a new heart and I can give you a new mind and I can restore you. That's why in this passage beginning in chapter 2, Paul literally here in this passage is talking to the Jew and about the Jew. Uh, We may say, well, you know, maybe we don't have any Jewish people here today. 
But the point Paul is making is this. If this can happen to the Jew, if this can happen to the chosen people of God, then how much more can it happen to any and all of us because of who they were? And so I want us to come at this passage from that perspective. Yes, technically speaking here, Paul's talking about the Jewish person. But there are many parallels between the Jewish person and, say, Christians today. And if, again, if this state can happen to the people of God, the chosen people of God of the Old Testament, then can it also happen to us? Absolutely. Which is why I want to begin directing your attention in chapter 2 to verse 29 to begin with. We're, we're going to go through this passage a little bit, but I want to begin here. We'll talk a little bit more about this, but here Paul is talking to the Jew, and a, a Jew who's so concerned with external things and rituals and symbols of his supposed faith in God. And so he's using circumcision here, a, a sign of the covenant. But notice what Paul says even to the Jew in verse 29 of chapter 2 of Romans. Someone is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit and not by the written code. Paul's saying even to the Jew and to all people, listen, we have to be willing for God to perform an internal spiritual surgery on our heart. Because it's not about externals. It's not about symbols like circumcision. It's, it's not about all these, you know, things like that. If my heart isn't right, because God's got to change our heart. And then if God has our heart and can begin to work on our heart and create in us a new heart, then the outside stuff, the external stuff will begin to take care of itself. But Paul's saying you can have all the external stuff. You can have all the trappings of religion and all of that and appear on the outside as if everything's okay. But if the heart isn't right, then it, all that doesn't matter. So I want you to see here in verse 29 of chapter 2 that Paul here talks about the fact that Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. We have got to get to the point where we acknowledge our spiritual condition apart from God and go, God, I, I need you in my life, not just to bring me into right relationship with you, not just to forgive me of my sin, but I need you in my life because I need a new heart. And apart from you and your divine influence in my life every day, my heart's going to go wacky. And if it starts to go wacky and I start to follow it, then I start to go off track. And so I need you to keep my heart where it needs to be. And then, in chapter 3, Paul begins to share some things that he's heard over the years from Jew and Gentile that really just illustrate how fatally flawed human logic and human thinking can be apart from God. And Paul's going to give some comments every once in a while, but I want you to see this. This is what this passage is all about. He's just sharing with us, look... A mind that is not completely directed towards God, that is not allowing the word of God to saturate it, that, that as Paul said to the second, in 2 Corinthians, when I am not striving to have every thought brought into captivity to Christ, 
He says, man, our mind and our thinking can get really warped really quickly. So notice what he says beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, what advantage does the Jew have or what is the value of circumcision? Actually, there are many advantages. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And we're going to talk more about this next week. What then? If some did not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul says, absolutely not. Let God be proven true and every human being shown up as a liar, as false, untrue, deceptive, just as it is written, so that you will be God justified in your words and will prevail when you are judged. Because believe it or not, we judge God too. Now notice verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? In other words, the argument is, well, if me being so bad makes God look good, then why does God have a problem with it? And you're, I know, but that's... That's that fatally flawed mind apart from God. That's how the human mind can begin to think. That's how the human mind can start really messing up God and the concept of God and the need for God and and their true spiritual condition because they're not really willing to face, as we talked about reality from day one in our study of Romans, they would rather live in a fantasy world, a world of make-believe, a world of imagination and even denial of what reality really is. And so our mind can just really mess us up. So Paul goes on. Notice he says at the end of verse 5, I'm speaking in human terms. In the Greek, he says, I'm speaking in human fallible logic. This isn't truth. This isn't reality. But this is what the mind of man will cook up left to himself apart from divine influence. So in verse 6, once again, he says, absolutely not. For otherwise, how could God judge the world? For if by my lie or falseness, the truth or reality of God enhances his glory, why am I still actually being judged as a sinner? Again, faulty human logic. Why does God have a problem with me if I just make God look good by how bad I am? I don't get it. Doesn't make any sense. Well, again, when when we're not thinking biblically, When we're not allowing God to renew our mind every day, our thinking can start to go real wacky real quick. That's why I've shared with many people down through the years, and I'll just say it again at this point in the message, one of the best books I've ever read and recommended to thousands of people, apart obviously from the Word of God, which is the book, is a book called Telling Yourself the Truth. Because most of us, have a hard time with that. We either allow the lies of Satan, the lies of others, or even our own lies to dominate our thinking rather than the truth of God. And when we do that, then we're never going to be free. Because Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and it will be the truth that sets you free. And yet we can be prisoners to our own way of thinking, our own mind, when we're not allowing our minds to be renewed every day. So he goes on to say, and verse eight, why not say, let us do evil so that good may come of it. In other words, well, let's just go out and be bad and see what God can make out of this mess. 
as some who slander us allege that we say their condemnation, Paul says, is deserved. So in these first eight verses of Romans 3, Paul's just sharing with us again then how much we need God in our life because if not, our heart goes off track, our mind goes off track, and, and we begin to see, even in our condition, wow, God, I really do need you. I really need you, you see. Now, going back now to chapter 2, verse 17, I want to show us today some of the things that Paul gives us from a Jewish perspective that illustrates, real practically speaking, what can begin to happen or show up in our life if we don't continually allow God to sort of create in us a new heart and a new mind every day. Where can we get to? And again, yes, he's using the Jew here. But my point is, if this can happen to a Jew, if this state can happen to the chosen people of God, then it can happen to any and all of us. So notice what Paul begins with in chapter 2, verse 17, as he illustrates someone who, even though they're a Jew, they're not allowing God to work on their heart and mind every day. Notice what he says. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relationship to God and know his will and approve the superior things because you receive instruction from the law, I want to stop there. Notice what Paul is saying here in these verses. He's saying, here's what begins to happen to a human being. You begin to get lifted up in pride rather than humble. And Paul says... That's one of the first ways we know that we're not allowing God to work on our heart and mind is when these privileges and, and, and this, you know, connection with God somehow instead of humbling us and taking us to a state of humility, we begin to get lifted up in pride. Paul says that's what happened to the Jew. And then notice what else he's saying here. He's saying, and guess what the Jew did? The Jews started to focus on his privileges rather than the responsibility of those privileges. See, from God's perspective, when God does give us greater light, when God gives us privileges, when God reveals himself further to us, it shouldn't be something that we all of a sudden strut around and take pride and go, yeah, I know all this and look what God did for me. And look what... It should be, oh my goodness. God did this in my life and he gave me this opportunity, but this carries with it a greater responsibility before him. See, when, when we're not allowing God to work on our heart and mind, instead of looking at it from the responsibility way of looking at it, we look at it from the privilege. And then that begins to lift us up in pride. And then notice what else he's talking about here in verse 18. He starts saying, and guess what happens? All of a sudden, what happens in our life is we start accumulating all this knowledge. And we can get very head knowledgeable about God and the things of God. He said, that's what happened to the Jew. It wasn't that they didn't know the Old Testament. Oh my goodness. The Jew knew his Old Testament more than probably most Christians will ever know the New Testament in their entire lifetime. But he said all that knowledge didn't translate into a 
holier lifestyle. He said, here's what it did translate into. Verse 19. If you're convinced that you yourself are a guide, a leader to the spiritually blind, a light to those who are in spiritual darkness, an educator of the senseless, in other words, those without spiritual understanding, a teacher of little children, meaning those spiritually immature, because you have in the law the essential features of knowledge and of the truth. In other words, guess what a lot of Jews did who had all this knowledge? They thought, well, I got all this knowledge, so I need to start teaching other people how to live their lives. And not that there's anything wrong with teaching and having teachers to teach others, but Paul's saying, but all you're doing is accumulating this knowledge and you're telling other people how to live. But then notice what Paul goes on to say. You're not applying it to your own life. He says, therefore, you who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself? Do you not put it into practice? Do you not apply it diligently to your own life? In other words, here's the danger for all of us, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. When we're not allowing God to work on our heart and mind every day, we can have a tendency as even Christians like the Jew to start accumulating all this biblical spiritual knowledge and have way more knowledge in what we're really putting into practice. And, and instead of focusing on living out our faith, we're always focused on just accumulating more information. And we become these spiritual sponges who have a lot of knowledge of what the Bible says, but it's not really every day translating into how I live my life before God. Paul says, that's why we need God to work on our heart and mind. Because just like the Jew, we can get to that place. And we can get to that place where it's really easy for us, like it was the Jew, to be very critical and accusatory of others, and yet somehow always excuse ourselves. As I've said before, sometimes we can get to a point where it's like, I want law for everybody else, but I want grace for me. And that condition shows we have a heart problem. We have a, a mind problem that God needs to work on. Because notice he goes on to say, you tell others, verse 22, or preach against stealing, verse 21. Do you steal? Do you take things secretly without permission? You tell others not to commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by transgressing the law or sidestepping it. Because again, the Jew knew the word. But because their heart and mind wasn't in the proper place, all it became was an accumulation of knowledge and facts that weren't really being fleshed out. And, and it became this sort of tool, if you will, that was wielded to, to make others feel bad. But they never shine that same light on themselves. In a sense, there was hypocrisy there. Again, very easily to be critical of others, and yet sometimes we do the very same things that we're critical of others doing, but somehow we excuse ourselves, even though we're very quick to accuse others. Paul's laying it all out, folks. He's saying, this is what happens to any of us 
When we don't allow God to do that internal surgery on our hearts and minds, because we really are in bad shape apart from God, and we need to realize it. Notice he goes on to say in verse 24, just as it is written, the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles, among those who don't know God because of you. In other words, God's reputation is being injured, harmed, hurt by the way you all are living your lives because you're not allowing God to have your heart and your mind. And then beginning in verse 25, because it was precious to the Jew, he uses circumcision. This symbol, this sign, if you will, that they were the people of God. Now, Paul could have used a lot of symbols. We could use symbols today. We could use symbols like baptism. Or we could even use a symbol like partaking of the Lord's table. And we could come to the very same conclusion. That just because someone is baptized, someone is circumcised, someone partakes of the Lord's table, means nothing if our heart isn't right. Because we can get caught up in going through the motions of all this religiosity and all these rituals that we know are supposed to be part of our Christianity and of our faith. But God is saying all those outward things mean nothing if our heart and mind isn't directed towards him. So notice what Paul says to the Jew. Verse 25, circumcision has its value. If you practice the law, But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It doesn't mean a thing, no matter what outward symbols or things you do. Therefore, if the uncircumcised man obeys the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised man who keeps the law judge you, who despite the written code and circumcision transgress the law? For again, I direct your attention to this. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Nor is circumcision something that is outward in the flesh. But someone is a Jew who is one inwardly. In the unseen hidden part. And circumcision is of the heart. By the spirit. And not by any written code. See, Paul's confronting the Jew and confronting us with this principle. And this is where religion and ritual fall short. Because down through the ages, there have been many human beings who can understand what supposedly religion means. And what are the symbols and rituals and and all the trappings of all these things. And where we can appear as if we are, you know, spiritual and we're on the right path. And we can do all these things outwardly. And yet God still doesn't have our heart or our mind. Or we're not allowing that internal surgery of God to be performed on our heart and our mind renewed. And God is saying, then it doesn't matter what you do outwardly. Because it has to start, first of all, with the mind and heart. And then it works its way out. That's why, for instance, we don't believe in infant baptism or baptism before someone becomes a believer. Because that baptism means nothing to that individual. They don't even know what's going on. It's just an outward symbol of religion and ritual. 
you see. And God is saying, it doesn't matter what we do outwardly, if inwardly, our heart and mind isn't in line with God. Notice also, something else he says will begin to happen whenever our heart and mind isn't in line with God. He ends this chapter by saying, this person's praise is not from people but from God, which is a reminder that when my heart and mind aren't in a good place, what will happen is I will begin to seek the applause of people more than I will the approval of God. And then he goes into chapter 3, where he lays this out. Why is Paul doing this at this point? Because before Paul goes on to talk about the wonders of salvation, Paul wants to nail down our true spiritual condition because here's why man today and man throughout the centuries really never felt like I really need God very much because man down through the centuries has downplayed where they really are apart from God. That's why, you know, even today, Christians, pretty complacent in their faith, in their reading of the word, in their prayer life, in their church attendance. It's just, eh, whatever. It's like if we really understood the reality of who we are and the effects of the fall of man on our mind and our heart, we'd never get complacent. We'd never relax spiritually. We would be seeking God all, at all times and, and asking for God's help and, and depending on God and, and making it a priority to pray and to be in His Word and to be amongst His people and to worship Him and to be in His presence because if not, folks, our heart and mind will begin to go And all of a sudden, we can get to a real bad place really quickly. I've seen it happen. I've seen it, first of all, happen in my own life. And then as a pastor, I've seen it happen in so many other Christians' lives. I can't tell you the number of people who at one time in one of the ministries that I was involved in, man, at one time, they were, they were faithful and they were serving. And, they were, and then something changed. Because guess what? We change. Things change. And we're either, as the Bible says, going to change for the better or allow God to change us for the better through working on our heart and mind or else we're going to get a point where We don't really realize how desperately we need God and we start to live life on our own and all of a sudden our thinking gets warped, our heart goes astray and all of a sudden this faithful, dedicated, committed Christian over here becomes someone that doesn't even have time for God anymore or time for God's people or time for the word or time for prayer. And we've all, we've all known people like that, maybe even ourselves, and go, how does that happen? Paul's telling us how it happens. 
And it all begins, really, with a willingness to be confronted with our true spiritual condition. Going back to the question, would you want a doctor to share with you the truth of your physical condition, even if it was bad news? Or would you want him to keep something from you? And when we start to play that scenario out in our minds, we understand, well, as hard as it would be to hear, if I don't really acknowledge it, then it's certainly not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. And I can pretend like I don't have this disease or whatever, but then nothing's ever going to happen positively from it. And God is saying the same thing to us here. He's saying, you and I can deny where we really are and the effects and consequences of the fall, but if we fail to do that, then our condition spiritually is never really going to change or get any better. It's only going to get worse. It's only when we're willing to see the reality of where we are with God that really begins to motivate us and inspire us and drive us to God. A God that no matter what our spiritual condition is always in pursuit of us and and is always there to say, I want to give you a new heart and new mind, but I won't force myself on you. It's got to be something you want, which goes back to last week's message about the want to. In fact, before we begin to wrap this up today, go over to chapter 5, verse 12. We're going to talk about this verse, this verse in a couple weeks from now, obviously. In fact, the way we're going, it's probably going to... No, I won't say it. So this verse sort of sums up even where we've been today. Romans 5, verse 12. It's a profound verse and something we have to face. God says, through Paul, So then... Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all people because all have sinned. That's the reality, folks. Every one of us is born with this terrible spiritual condition. It's one of the things we pass on from one generation to another. In fact, I'll just say it in front of you guys. I apologize to Beth and Stephen at this point. Because guess what I passed on to my children? That's sin nature. We pass it on to everyone. It's the way it's been ever since Adam and Eve. But God says there's a remedy for that. You don't have to stay in that condition. You can have a new heart and a renewed mind if you just turn to me. Because God is the only one that can reverse the effects of the fall. The only one. We can't do it. Nothing out in the world can do it. Only God can reverse the effects of sin And the fall of mankind. Only God can change a heart. 
Only God can change someone's mind and way of thinking. And God says, will you let me do that today? I want us to be in a celebratory mood today when we come before this table. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And here's what I mean by that. We obviously need to take the Lord's table serious. But the reason I want us to approach this table today in a celebratory way is because when you and I go up to that table today and we receive the provision of Jesus' blood and, and the body that He had broken for us, I want us also to remember the sufficiency of our Savior. And that when we approach that table, what Jesus is also saying to us when He left this symbol behind for us was that this should have meaning in many different ways, but one way this should have meaning is is for us to realize as human beings that I'm sufficient. That I can take care of anything if you come to my table. I can take care of your sin. I can reverse the effects of the fall. I can give you a new heart and new mind. I can help you to face whatever challenge and obstacle you're facing in your life. I can give you victory. I can help you overcome anything. I am the mighty God. In Hebrew, El Gibor. That's who I am. And Jesus is just asking us if we come to that table today, will we see his sufficiency as we partake of these elements? Paul later on in the book of Romans says, who who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And in the very next verse, he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our victory. He's the one that can change our heart and mind. He can give us a new way to think. He can change the affections and desires and purposes of our heart. He can take us on a new direction in life of spiritual prosperity and health and well-being. But what it may take to get us to that point There's a divine diagnosis that we looked at today where God holds up, in a sense, our spiritual x-ray in front of us and says, Jeff, here's who you really are. Do you know how desperately you need me? And isn't it amazing That our God, even though we are in such a desperate spiritual condition, it's not like, oh, I don't want anything to do with you, even though you're in that place. No, it's just the opposite. That's the love of God. God says, Jeff, I know how bad you are. I know what a desperate condition you're in. I know what a sinful human being you are, but I love you and I died for you. Even when you were a sinner, Even when you were an enemy and hostile to me and my adversary, I died for you. Because I not only want to give you life in me, 
I want to create a new heart in you, Jeff. I want to renew your mind. Come to me today, Jesus says. And receive my sufficiency. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to ask our gals to begin dismissing. For you to go up and get the elements. We would just ask that as you get them, you'd come back to your seat. Whether you want to join in singing this song or you just want to pray or meditate or whatever you want to do. Talk to God. Have God talk to you. Just do whatever the Lord is leading you to do. We just ask that you would hold off partaking actually of these elements until we've all been served and we can all take them together. The song we're going to sing today to close is that God is mighty to save. And I hope, again, as you go up to that table and you gather these elements, and even as you leave this auditorium today, that that will be resonating in your inner being. My God is mighty to save. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're being confronted with, what you're being challenged with today. But I know this. God is able to help you with anything and everything. If we will just recognize our need of him and come to him today, he is sufficient. Let's pray. God, as we come to your table today, may we come recognizing that this is your table, the Messiah's table, the Messiah's banquet table, where he lays out a feast for those who will come and partake. The kind of sufficiency that Jesus said, if you partake of what I have to give you, you will never thirst again. God, I pray today that we will see in you that you are the answer. That no matter what condition we find ourselves in, you're the one. All we need to do is acknowledge it and come to you. And we'll find help. Lord, go with us today. Help us to see how sufficient a Savior you are as we take up into our hands the symbols of your blood and of your body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.